0: On the walls of my 10th grade history classroom, there was a poster hanging of a stern-looking Winston Churchill, and the words, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We've all heard some variation of this quote. The Irish statesman Edmund Burke said something similar, as did the Spanish philosopher George Santayana. But who was the first person with this idea? It was probably the ancient Greek historian Thucydides.
1: He had the view, which has become very common since his day, that history is kind of cyclical, that things that happened in the past will happen again in similar ways in the future. Uh, And the reason why he believed that was that uh, uh, he was convinced that there is a constant factor operating in history. The world is full of changes and circumstances change and you know, civilizations rise and fall and so on, but there's always one constant factor, and that is human nature. I'm Richard Billows. I'm a professor of Greek and Roman history at Columbia University in
0: New York. This constant factor, human nature, is a double-edged sword. It makes it both possible to repeat history and to learn from it. Thucydides was really one of the first historians to see written history as more than just record keeping. He wanted to know why certain events unfolded as they did. His great work, History of the Peloponnesian War, documents the causes and effects of the 27-year long war between Athens and Sparta. And that makes him a very remarkable, uh, really almost
1: unique historian in the ancient world. There are a number of wonderful uh, ancient historical writers like Herodotus or Polybius, but there isn't another one who does the analysis of historical events in the way that Thucydides does.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Richard Billows to discuss Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. Despite how influential Thucydides has become, very little is known about his life. The little that we do know comes from his text, History of the Peloponnesian War. He was born sometime between 460 and 455 BC on the outskirts of Athens in a town called Halimus. When Thucydides was a young boy, his father took him into Athens to hear a lecture by the Greek historian Herodotus. This event left a big impression on young Thucydides. After the lecture, Thucydides announced that writing history was his life's calling, but it would be a few years before he answered this calling.
1: Thucydides was came from a great Athenian political family, um, and he was elected uh, one of the 10 generals who were the political and military leaders of the Athenian state um, in the early stages of the war, but he um, basically uh, failed Uh, on an assignment in the northern Aegean uh, and was declared to have been negligent,
0: uh, prosecuted for it, and sent into exile. This unfortunate turn of events actually became an advantage for Thucydides later in life. When he started to document the Peloponnesian War, he was able to do so impartially. Because he was rejected by Athens and sent into exile and didn't have any ties to Sparta, he felt no real allegiance to either side. While in exile, he was able to talk freely with people on both sides of the war. This helped him piece together a more balanced account of the war and the events leading up to it. This was a radically new way of recording history. What was early history? How did cultures and peoples tell stories about the past before some of these more modern, you know, what we would call modern historians?
1: We certainly have a lot of sort of historical writing from uh, the ancient Near East, from Sumerians and Babylonians and Egyptians. But they tend to be chronicles, that is to say, they're lists of events, usually highlighting the great leader, the pharaoh in Egypt, or, uh, you know, the great king in one of the Sumerian cities or in Babylon. Uh, And they, they don't try to understand Uh, anything other than uh, the kings and their own point of view, there's no uh, analysis, there's no attempt to understand in a rational way what's
0: going on or why it's going on. These accounts were really one-sided. Egyptians only wrote about the great deeds of the Egyptians. The same was true for the Babylonians. They weren't attempting to write unbiased histories.
1: The alternative that you see, for example, in the the ancient Israelite writings that make up the so-called Hebrew Bible are uh, that uh, explanation is always in terms of God. You know, the word of God came to so-and-so Samuel or Ezekiel or someone, um, and they go out and tell whoever they're supposed to tell that God wants you to do this, that, or the other. And then these people either do it, and do well, or don't do it, and suffer. Uh, And it's all in terms of uh, establishing the religious narrative, and of course, running through it, the idea that uh, that God has a particular chosen people, and his interest is in them. Uh, And other people who are not
0: Israelites are uh, peripheral, really. When other peoples appear, They are typically only shown interacting with the Israelites, or whoever God's chosen people are in a given text. Again, a really one-sided history. Not everyone was satisfied with these kinds of historical accounts. In ancient Greece, a group of intellectuals began seeking new answers for the big questions of individual and social life.
1: And in that uh, region of the Eastern Aegean part of the Greek world, there arose an intellectual movement um, that we call uh, early rationalism, uh, and you get a series of thinkers uh, who are not—they're not satisfied with the standard, traditional, uh, mostly religious explanations of how how the world works and how the world came into existence. Uh, and how human beings came into existence, and they start to query the traditional stories and to try to come up with rational explanations instead. These are the thinkers who get called pre-Socratics. I personally don't like that name because it, it imagines that they're just some kind of minor preliminaries leading up to, you know, the great Socrates. I call them the early rationalist philosophers. They're interested in epistemology and ontology, as we would call it. Uh, How is it possible to know something? What can one know? What is existence? How does it come about? What what does it mean?
0: Out of this movement comes Herodotus, the historian Young Thucydides heard lecturing in Athens.
1: Herodotus uh, came from a Greek city on the coast of modern-day Turkey called Halicarnassus. It was a city that was incorporated into the Persian Empire. So, you know, when Herodotus was born, his city was a a small outpost in the Persian Empire.
0: Herodotus was brought up in this rationalist intellectual tradition, but he was also influenced by the politics of his day. He was born right in the middle of a war between the Greeks and the Persian Empire, who ruled over present-day Turkey. The Persian Empire had been expanding eastward, conquering Greek city-states, including Herodotus' hometown of Helicarnassus. But the Greeks revolted and fought back against the mighty Persian Empire. After roughly 50 years of fighting, the Greeks, against all odds, won. This victory fascinated Herodotus.
1: And he puts these two things together. The rationalist inquiry that comes from these early sort of proto-philosophical thinkers and all the stories about the great conflict between the Greeks and the Persians, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to tell this story, um, but I'm not going to tell it in a traditional way. I'm going to tell it in this new rational way. I'm going to try to understand it rationally and explain it rationally.
0: Towards the end of his life, Herodotus published his masterwork, known today as Histories. This work contains his telling of the Greco-Persian Wars, as well as a record of ancient politics, traditions, and geography of the Eastern Mediterranean world.
1: I mean, his book was an instant hit. He used to give live readings of it, and evidently people were immensely impressed, and he gathered enormous fame as a result.
0: Right around the time Herodotus published Histories, a new war was breaking out, the Greek Civil War. After the Greco-Persian Wars that Herodotus documented, the Greek city-states began forming two different alliances, Athens and Sparta. And
1: they represented opposite spectrums in Greek political and military culture. Uh, The Spartans were oligarchic. They, you know, it was a narrow elite dominating Spartan society. And they were the past masters of warfare on land because they trained their whole lives for it.
0: The Athenians, on the other hand, were democratic.
1: The very word democracy is invented in Athens to describe this new collective political system they've created. And they were the past masters of warfare at sea. Uh, on these uh, galley warships that the Greeks had developed. Um, And so you have an alliance system on the Greek mainland dominated by Sparta and an alliance system of the Greek islands and coastal cities dominated by the Athenians. And they are rivals and eventually go to war against each other. And Thucydides decides, you know, This is really the great war. Um, This is an even bigger, more impressive war than the war that the Greeks fought against the Persians. I'm going to outdo Herodotus. (laughs) What Herodotus did for that war, I'm going to do for this
0: war, only more so. Thucydides set out to not only tell the story of this Greek civil war, but also the reasons for it. And this is what you see right at the beginning of
1: Thucydides' history. What does he do? He doesn't just say, you know, uh, on this date the Spartans decided to declare war on the Athenians uh, and the war began in this way. He wants to know how and why. And he develops a whole theory of causation. And he has three levels of causation he has the immediate um, excuses and justifications that the Spartans used. Uh, for declaring war exactly when they did. Then he has underlying causes. uh, What led up to that decision?
0: One of Sparta's most powerful allies at the time was the Greek city of Corinth. Like the Athenians, the Corinthians were also a naval power. And as the interests
1: of the Corinthians and the Athenians clash, Uh, and the Corinthians lose, the Corinthians start to put pressure on the Spartans. You're our, you know, our ally. You're the leader of our alliance system. You have to help us. You have to defend us uh, against these Athenians. Otherwise, what's the point of being in this alliance system? Um, So there's an underlying cause. The Spartans are being pressured by allies who have their own conflicts with the Athenians. And then he says there is the true cause, (laughs) Uh, long-term, and the long-term cause is the growth of Athenian power.
0: Sparta had reached the height of its power by roughly 500 BC. But by the 430s, Sparta had stopped expanding and Athens was starting to look like a threat.
1: And the growth of Athenian power, has scared the Spartans. <laughs> Where is this going? And made a large faction at Sparta feel we, we're going to have to fight these Athenians at some point because they're getting stronger and stronger and we are not. And therefore, we, we have to fight them at a time when we're still strong enough to beat them. Uh, So you have the real reason, Spartan fear of the growth of Athenian power and the sense that they're going to outgrow us at some point and we have to stop them before they do. The pressures on Sparta from allies that made the Spartans think this is the time. And then the specific immediate um, events that led the Spartans to make the decision, right, now it We're going.
0: This ancient Greek civil war became known as the Peloponnesian War. We call it the
1: Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesus is uh, a huge peninsula that makes up most of southern Greece. And Sparta lay in that Peloponnesian peninsula and dominated that whole part of Greece. Uh, And the Spartan alliance system was essentially made up of almost all of the Greek states in the Peloponnesus.
0: It makes me think of, uh, you know, a domino chain. And, you know, you could say, well, the last piece fell over because of just the piece right before it. But he seems to be trying to go back to the very first piece in that chain.
1: Right. In a sense, you know, he's saying that uh, the whole thing happened because somebody set up the dominoes in this way. Right? So the whole thing happened because the Spartans had this big alliance system, and the Athenians developed their own alliance system, and the two inevitably had to be rivals. And when one is basically stagnant and the other is constantly expanding, the stagnant one feels, um, this isn't going in the right direction, we've got to do something about this. And then it's just a question of you know, deciding when and how.
0: Thucydides wrote his history of this war in the text known today as the History of the Peloponnesian War. So to understand the book as a whole, you know, what is the text itself? Um, How does it look?
1: So you start with the origins of the war and this whole causation process. Then uh, he looks back into history. Where is this coming from? And he does a long digression known as the 50 years where he basically goes back to the end of the Persian Wars and describes the rise of this Athenian alliance system and how the Athenians interacted with the Spartans, sometimes in a friendly way, sometimes in a hostile way, during the almost 50-year period between 479, the end of the Persian Wars, and 432, the beginning of the so-called Peloponnesian War.
0: In this way, Thucydides picks up where Herodotus left off with his account of the Greco-Persian Wars. After Thucydides fills in the 50 years between the end of the Greco-Persian Wars and the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, he gets into the actual fighting of the Peloponnesian War. Unlike Herodotus, Thucydides wrote his text chronologically. In fact, Thucydides is one of the first Western historians to document a historical event year by year. In his account of the war, Each year is divided into the summer months, when most of the fighting took place, and the winter months, which were generally less active because of bad weather. He got as far as the year 410.
1: The history is incomplete. Uh, He died before he could finish it. Um, And uh, at least two other historians then took up the story where he left off. But they were not Thucydides. (laughs) They, They really couldn't do what he had done.
0: Could you give us a summary of the war as Thucydides accounts it? I mean basically what's the what's the story and how does it resolve? The
1: war falls into four phases really. Uh, in the initial phase the the Spartan idea is that we will gather a, gr- a great land army, our own, you know, supreme Spartan army plus uh, armies, military forces drawn from all of our allies. And with this great army, we will march out of the uh, Peloponnesus, this great uh, peninsula, through the narrow isthmus that connects the Peloponnesus to central Greece. And we'll march into the territory of the Athenians and challenge them to come out and fight us.
0: The Spartans, being a landlocked nation, were masters of fighting on land. Their plan was to go to Athens, kill their livestock and crops, and generally loot and pillage. They thought if they did this, then the Athenians would be forced to come out and fight the Spartans on land.
1: Uh, And the Spartan view was, uh, if they come out and fight us in a great land battle, we'll win. Because the Spartans had won land battles for 200 years. No one could
0: figure out how to beat them. But word of the Spartan plan got out. The Athenians knew they would lose a land battle against Sparta. So they decided they wouldn't take the bait. Athens was a naval power. So even if Sparta ruined their land, they could still import food by sea. They wouldn't starve, and they wouldn't have to fight on land. And the Athenians began devising a plan of their own.
1: While they are doing that to our land, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put our soldiers on our ships, and we're going to sail out, and we're going to sail around the Peloponnesus, their land, and we're going to stop off constantly land troops march inland, ravage and pillage and loot and damage their lands while they're doing it to ours. So, you know, the first phase of the war is essentially a stalemate. The Spartans don't want to fight the Athenians at sea because they're pretty sure they'll lose, and the Athenians don't want to fight the Spartans on land because they're pretty sure they'll lose. So they both damage each other's territory. That goes on for 10 years. But after 10 years of that, both sides are pretty exhausted. And they realize this isn't getting anywhere. We're both suffering uh, damage. We both had losses. We both had gains. But it's, it's, it's a stalemate.
0: So they make a peace agreement called the Peace of Nicaea.
1: Unfortunately, the Peace of Nicaea doesn't work. And it doesn't work because... In order to make this peace deal, both sides make promises that they're unable to keep.
0: During these 10 years of fighting, the Spartans captured the Athenian region of Amphipolis. This was an important area for Athens because it's where they got the wood to build their ships. Meanwhile, Athens had captured the Spartan region of Pylos and they were using it as a base for constant attacks. Under the Peace of the Nicaeus Treaty, Sparta agreed to give Amphipolis back to Athens and Athens agreed to give Pylos back to Sparta. The problem was that the people of Amphipolis refused to be given back to Athens. And without Amphipolis, Athens refused to give back Pylos.
1: So you get a a six-year period that's kind of like a Cold War, where officially there's kind of a peace, but in fact they're still competing uh, with each other and there's still fighting going on in various places. not directly between the Athenians and the Spartans, but kind of little proxy wars and things.
0: This went on for a little while, but then the Athenians thought they saw a way to put an end to the war.
1: A leader named Alcibiades on the Athenian side says, look, a lot of cities in the Peloponnesus uh, don't have the resources to feed their populations uh, f- exclusively from their own land. They import food uh, from the west." Uh, especially from sicily uh, and if we go and capture sicily and bring it into our alliance system we can enormously increase our strength and we can put a stranglehold on the sparta's allies who import food from sicily uh we won't let them import and that will force them to uh, make peace with us and break up the spartan alliance system fantastic let's do it
0: sounds like a great idea yeah
1: <laughs> Uh, It didn't work out too well. (laughs) The people of Syracuse, the most important city in Sicily, beat the Athenians. The total disaster of the Sicilian expedition in 412 cut Athenian power in half, basically. They lost half of their power, their ships, men, everything. And that gave the Spartans the idea, we can finish them off now. They're weakened. But to finish them off, we have to fight them at sea because that's where their power is but unfortunately building fleets costs a lot of money and the spartans didn't have money so they made a deal with the persians the persian empire and the deal was they would provide the money the spartans would provide uh, the men and the leadership and together they would create a fleet that would beat the uh, the athenians and basically for 8 years between 412 and 404, uh, the Athenians, having lost half of their power, fought on against the Spartans and all of their allies, the Persian Empire, uh, Sicilian forces that came from Sicily to help beat these damned Athenians, and most of the Athenians' own allies who rebelled and joined the Spartans And for a while, the Athenians were winning. (laughs) They kept fighting for eight years, and on two different occasions, they almost won. Even then, Uh, in the end, they lost and uh, had to give up.
0: After the war, Sparta took over Athens and set up an oligarchy now known as the 30 Tyrants. They sent many Athenians into exile in the nearby town of Thebes. The 30 tyrants ruled Athens for roughly eight months, until the Athenian general Thrasybulus overthrew the oligarchy and restored the Athenian democracy. And
1: within 10 years, they were once again one of the most powerful states in the Greek world.
0: Thucydides died around 400 BC. His history of the Peloponnesian War was published a few years after his death. I wonder if you could say a word about his enduring... Influence on the field of history and our our modern understanding of of what history is
1: one part of his uh, Fundamental importance is his determination to try to be objective Um, And the ideal is that uh, historians should be Objective in so far as it's possible for anyone to be objective So the majority of the war, he was on neither side. He was an Athenian, but he had been rejected by the Athenian democracy and was living in exile. As an exile, he was able to visit and talk to people on the other side. And of course, as an Athenian, he could still, he still had contacts in Athens. He still knew people, he had relatives, he heard about what was happening there.
0: Although he wasn't allowed back into Athens for many years, Through his contacts, he was able to stay up to date on the Athenian side of the war. He did this while simultaneously talking to Sparta and their allies.
1: So he was able to see both sides. And he wasn't exactly friendly to the Athenian democracy that had declared him negligent and exiled him. neither was he exactly friendly to the opposing Spartan alliance system, who of course were fighting against his own people. Uh, and he made the effort to try to understand both sides and to present not an Athenocentric view, not a view hostile to the Athenians, but to try to get at what was really happening. And he says, I, I never accepted one person's word on any event. I tried to interview multiple witnesses from all sides Uh, I found that their versions, their memories uh, varied. I tried to sift them. I tried to understand to the best of my ability what really happened. And the modern historian wants to try to do something like what Thucydides tried to do, that standard of not presenting a biased, one-sided account, but of trying to understand what both sides or all sides, because there's often more than two sides in a conflict. What are their viewpoints? What are their arguments? What are their motivations? How did things come about to try to get at some kind of uh, reasonably neutral, reasonably objective analysis uh, to, to understand what was really going on here? That's very much from Thucydides. He's the pioneer of of seeing history in
0: that way. Thucydides understood the power of learning from the past. If human nature is the constant factor in history, then our past actions can provide valuable insight to guide our future actions. Thucydides is remembered today as the father of scientific history. His cause-and-effect analysis of history is still being practiced today.
1: So he really is an extraordinarily relevant figure even though he lived two and a half thousand years ago in a completely different society under completely different conditions the way he interpreted uh, the underpinnings of what was happening in his day has resonated all the way through and it still resonates today
0: Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.